I assume that some of you have uh, figured out that we lifted the series title for this uh, few weeks in James from the 2006 documentary by um, Al Gore, which was called An Inconvenient Truth and was basically uh, a recording of a lecture that Al Gore was giving back in 2006 about climate change. Might have even been called global warming back then. But this movie, An Inconvenient Truth, somebody had the idea to capture this on film and they filmed Al Gore giving this lecture. And this movie actually started really the global conversation about climate change that we are still grappling with literally almost week by week in the news in our culture. Just this, this past week, there was the UN report about animal extinction and um, there was one journalist that I follow on Twitter and he says, if I'm honest, probably the biggest story of my lifetime is the fact that uh, since I was born in 1969, there is now half the amount of animal life on our planet there was when I was born. And you're sort of recognizing the magnitude and the importance of a conversation about what is happening to our global climate right now. And if you think about it, that's kind of what an inconvenient truth is all about. It's an aptly named documentary. Because an, what an inconvenient truth is, is that it acknowledges that there are some things that you can go through life without ever really thinking about. Like climate change. Without ever really noticing or without ever really acknowledging. Because it is more convenient for my lifestyle to remain ignorant of the truth. What the inconvenient truth is, is a reckoning with the actual reality of the way things really are in a way that forces me to rewire how I live my life to inconvenience myself in response to the reality with which I've been confronted. And that is what James has been doing in these passages that we've been looking at in these last three weeks. And we're going to look at the third passage in James chapter five, starting in verse seven. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can follow along. But we've been looking at truths that we tend to ignore, but if we acknowledge them, they will really inconvenience our lives. Like we, two weeks ago, we looked at the, the reality that we can live our lives as though we're in control of the future, that we are the captains, we are the masters of our fate and the captains of our soul. And the inconvenient truth was that the only person in control of our future is God. And it forces us to rethink how we plan for our future, that we have to hold our plans with open hands and say, I am willing to submit my will to your will. It's what you want and not what I want, God. And then last week we talked about the reality that we live in a culture whose economy literally celebrates things like uh, accumulation and consumption and profitability at any cost and the expansion of power and privilege. And the inconvenient truth was the ways that we naturally just slip into participating in the economy of our culture, all of those things are at some level antithetical to the kingdom economy, to the way of Jesus. And anyone who participates in that kind of economics is literally at odds with Jesus and will experience judgment because of it. 
Well, this week, we look at the third inconvenient truth. And in this week, James addresses the third different audience. In the first week, it was you who say that I'm going to go to this city or that city and do business and make money, who think you're in control of the future. Last week, it was now listen, you rich people. And we decided that that meant you ungodly rich people, you rich people who live according to the economics of the world rather than the economics of Jesus. This is who James is addressing this week, James chapter 5, verse 7. He says, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Brothers and sisters is different than you who say you're going to do this or that, or you rich people. Brothers or sisters is the phrase that James uses when he wants to adopt a more loving pastoral tone towards the people that he's writing. When he wants to come up, you know, and put his arm around and say, hey, Let's, let's think about this. When he's not confronting and getting in people's faces about their behavior. But who are these brothers and sisters that he's writing to? I think the most important word in this verse is that word then. Then. In Greek, it's the word therefore. It acknowledges that just last week we were talking about a passage where ungodly wealthy people were living lives of accumulation and consumption and they were treating their workers unjustly and and operating to expand their power and privilege and real people were getting crushed and hurt in the process and that God was going to come and judge that sort of economic behavior and James falls out and says, therefore, brothers and sisters, you be patient. The therefore seems to indicate to me that James is writing now to the people within his community who are the ones being crushed by the oppressive, unjust, victimizing behavior that we talked about last week. Those he's writing to, those poor Farmers operating the family farm that has been in their family for generations. The ones who are being driven into bankruptcy by these large monopolies that are manipulating market prices. And they're being forced to sell their farms or take out exorbitant loans and being reduced to tenant farmers or, or just day laborers who are literally not even getting paid a fair living wage. Can't even put enough food on the table for their kids and who have, we said last week, who have no legal recourse in the courts because the judges are all landowners or the friends of landowners are willing to take bribes to bend the arc of justice towards power and privilege. These are people, and this is the audience, these are people who are stuck in circumstances that they cannot control and who are experiencing suffering pain and loss that they cannot escape. That's who James is writing to, people who are stuck in circumstances they cannot control and who are experiencing suffering, pain, and loss that they cannot escape. He's writing to people who are sitting in the room right now. If not you, he's writing to people that you know and love. If we say he's writing to the kinds of people we were talking about last week, then we're saying he's writing to the poor who can't find a way out. He's writing to the oppressed and the victimized. He's writing in our culture to people like the indigenous community and people of color and um, 
women who all live in a system that was meant to privilege people who look more like me. He's writing to people who are stuck in health circumstances, physical or mental uh, diagnoses that um, you can do nothing about. He's writing to people who are stuck in relationships, whether you know roommates or at work or friendships or with a spouse or with their kids that are creating suffering, pain, and loss. He's writing to people who are living, like two weeks ago, in an uncertainty about their future, who have unanswered and unanswerable questions and who are absolutely not in control with what, of what happens next. They're, he's writing to people who are experiencing instability in their finances, who are routinely discovering that there is too much month left at the end of the money. He's writing to people who are living in fear and anxiety, people who are experiencing anger towards God and themselves and the people around them, people who are experiencing doubt in the midst of their faith because they are trapped in circumstances they cannot control and they are experiencing suffering, pain, and loss that they cannot escape. And what does James want to say to you if that's where your life is? Well, The inconvenient truth this week is what James doesn't say. What he doesn't say is you should pray about it and God will make everything better. What he says instead is be patient. In fact, he gives an example after saying being patient, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, he gives an example of what it is he wants them to be like. In in verse 7, he goes on, he says, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop patiently waiting. Those are the words for the autumn and spring rains. If you were a farmer in ancient Israel, your crops depended 100% on two rainy seasons, one in the autumn between October and December, and one in the spring between March and April. Without those two rainy seasons, your crops were guaranteed to fail. Which is a terrifying prospect because in the ancient world, see, like today we can irrigate and water. In the ancient world, literally the one thing a farmer could not control was the weather, was the rain. So you could be the best farmer in the entire country. You could work harder, getting up earlier and going to bed later than everybody else. You could have mastered all of the techniques. You could have the top quality soil and seed and equipment and your crops, if you do not get the fall and the spring rains, your crops were guaranteed to fail. And there's honestly Nothing you could do about it. In fact, your attempts to intervene would probably only make matters worse. If you attempted to take matters into your hands, you would only actually do damage. Literally, the only thing you could do is patiently wait and pray in faith that God would show up and bring the rain. And in the meantime, you would ration the food that you'd had, probably even towards the end, skipping some meals just to make sure that your kids had enough to eat while you patiently wait and faithfully pray to see whether the rains will come. There is literally nothing else 
you can do, but to wait in trust. And this is precisely what James calls us to as well. In verse 8, he says this, you too, if you are stuck in circumstances you can't control and experiencing suffering, pain, and loss that you cannot escape, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. James says, here's what I want you to do instead of taking matters into your own hands, instead of trying to seize control, instead of trying to force things to change, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be patient. The word in Greek is macrothumia. Thumia just means suffering and macro means a whole lot. Someone who has macrothumia is somebody who is able to endure a whole lot of suffering. Who's able, the King James would say, would suffer much or suffer long. They were people who were able to hang in there. No matter how bad things got, no matter for how long they were bad, they were able to persistently endure with patience and wait for God to show up and do something. This is exactly what James means when he says the the Lord's coming. Um, Some commentators believe that he's referring to the Jesus coming back again when Jesus will ultimately one day return to earth and unleash the power of his Holy Spirit and literally recreate everything so that all the wrongs in the world are righted and all the pain is removed and everything is the way God has intended it to be. And that is going to happen one day. But I don't think that's the whole of what James means. I think that's just the final instance of the ways in which God even now in our lives sometimes shows up in acts and intervenes in ways that makes the wrong things right and makes the pain heal makes the suffering go away. James says, what what I need you to do is be patient and wait and faithfully pray that God would show up and do something. And in the meantime, he says two things. Number one, stand firm. Don't allow the discouragement, don't allow the the suffering and the pain and the loss, don't allow that to cause you to begin to waver in your faith. Don't, Don't wander away from God. Don't give up on God. Don't give up on faith in the meantime. Hang in there. And in fact, you know, think about those clay hearts that we held out uh, before God earlier on in the service. In fact, continue to steadfastly hold that heart out before God and say, God, would you use this season to do in me the thing that you want to do in me? The very first chapter of James says that we should celebrate it when we go through these seasons where where we are trapped in circumstances we can't control and experiencing suffering, pain, and loss that we cannot escape those circumstances we should thank God for them because it is in the midst of those circumstances of all other circumstances that is when God does his best work at forming our hearts to look like the heart of Jesus he says so don't give up don't walk away don't pack it in he says stand firm persist and hold that heart out to God and ask God shape me into the person that you want to be make good of these terrible circumstances. That's the first thing. The second thing he says is this in verse nine, don't grumble against one another. 
brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. He says, first of all, stand firm with your heart held out to God, saying, God, would you form me in the midst of these circumstances? In fact, I heard one pastor say, God, do not set me free from these circumstances until you're finished doing the work you want me to, you need to do in me. But the second thing is, he says, don't grumble. The word grumble um, means to sigh out of frustration. It's kind of a, an inner disposition of aggravation and annoyance and irritation that then manifests itself and gets vented towards all the people around us when we get super frustrated because this is what we do right when when we're trapped in these circumstances when things are stressful when the fear and anxiety is rising when the anger against God or ourselves or the people around us is beginning to build what we do is we vent on the people around us right that's that's how it works Things are stressful at work, and so you come and blow up at the people at home. It's things are stressful at home, and you go and you blow up at the people at work. And James says, don't do that. This is not a moment to be busting up your community. You need these people in these moments now more than ever. Like live in a way towards them that is filled with unity and love and, and stand in solidarity with them. Invite them. Stand together as a community. Stop pointing fingers and playing the blame game and, and throwing each other under the bus. Stand together united in, in loving community because you need each other now more than ever. And James says if you don't judgment waits for people who destroy community because of stress that they're experiencing in their own life you will experience the consequences of making that decision in fact James would say that is as unfaithful a response to stress as just packing it up and walking away So James says this, brothers and sisters. Some of you are stuck in circumstances you can't control. And you're experiencing suffering, pain, and loss that you cannot escape. Don't give up. Patiently endure your circumstances standing firm in faith and holding that heart out to God saying, God, shape me into the person you want me to be and surround yourself with the people who will stand with you in love and keep you safe. Because if you do, James says, you will be blessed. He says in verse 11, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. James says, think about the people that you have watched go through terrible circumstances in their own life. People that you admire. People who have responded faithfully. People who have radiated the life and love of Jesus even as they're going through the worst possible circumstances you could ever imagine. Think about how much you look at those people and admire them and say, the life of God is glowing out of them. James says, yeah. Because they're blessed for the way that they're responding. Go be like them. 
And then he gives two examples. The first one is this, verse 10. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. It's an interesting example. Because on the one hand, the prophets, the people who wrote you know, these books, the prophets are heroes of the faith. They're the people that, especially you know, in James's church or even in the community of faith now, we would look at these people and say, these are the people who got it so right with God that God literally said to them, could you write that down? I'd like to include that in my book. Like these were the people who were blessed, the people who got it right And in the midst of their getting it right, precisely because they got it right, they experienced an inordinate amount of suffering, pain, and loss. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11. Some of them faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, impoverished, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. If you live in a hole in the ground, you are living like a prophet. (laughs) These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Here's the interesting thing about the prophets. They were faithful. In all things to be the person God had, created, had called them to be. They were the ones who were speaking God's words and calling God's people back to living in conformity with God's way. And as a result of their faithfulness, they suffered. Think about that. We will say, sometimes we don't say it, but we will believe that people who are faithful shouldn't have to suffer. That's why when we get bad news, the first question is, what did we do to deserve this? Or why me, God? What, what is it about me that deserves this kind of suffering? Or when somebody we love gets a diagnosis we hate, the first thing we say is, but they are such good people, as though the goodness of the people that they are ought to inoculate them against suffering and pain and loss. And the Bible affirms that that's just not the way it works. In fact, these people experience greater suffering because of their greater faithfulness. That the world is just a messed up place. It's broken and full of sin. And the people who deserve it least get it the most sometimes. It's not a sign that you're doing something wrong. It may very well be a sign that you're doing something right in your faith. But here's what's interesting about James using the prophets as an example. I said before, the only thing you can do is be patient and wait and stand steadfast and don't bust up the community and so on. Being patient does not mean doing nothing. The farmer doesn't do nothing while he's waiting for the rain. He works his butt off every single day, gets up early, goes to bed late, works like mad to make sure that he has done everything within his control to create the kind of circumstances where success can happen if the rains will come. The prophets didn't do nothing. They got out of bed every day to decry and denounce the injustice and oppression, to denounce the sin and the evil that was dragging 
people and institutions and systems away from the way that God wanted the world to be. And every day they stood up and they said, friends, brothers, sisters, this is not how it should be. Let's do it God's way. Instead, they railed and they rallied and they fought and they screamed with all of their lives to try and make a difference. And because of that, they suffered. And that's when they patiently endured. It doesn't mean do nothing. Do everything within your control to take responsibility for your circumstances and then just recognize, like Jeff said two weeks ago, that your future's in God's hands and patiently wait, standing firm, being formed by God, having your little clay heart in your hands and surrounding yourself with a community that can walk with you through it. That's what James says. Be like them. Do what they did. Then he gives another example. He says, you've, you've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. In the, in the Bible, the story of Job is literally the story of the man. Well, it's not literally a story. It's a poem, but <laughs> it's a story about a guy who had everything. He loved God a lot and God had given him lots of good things. And then he lost it all. His kids died in a tragic accident. He went bankrupt. He lost his health. His wife left him. His best friends smeared his reputation. He lost everything a human being can can lose. And James says, but do you remember how he responded? He responded like this. Job chapter one, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job was the most righteous person alive in the story. And Job suffered more than anyone else had suffered. And what did Job respond? God gave me a lot and now it's all gone. That does not change the goodness of God in my life. I will continue To worship him instead of blaming him for the circumstances I'm experiencing right now. And because of his faithful response at the end of the story, God blesses him by restoring everything he had. By restoring his marriage and restoring his, giving him more kids and restoring his estate and all sorts of stuff. Which is interesting to compare the prophets and Job. The prophets did not receive the blessing that was promised in their lifetime. They had to wait till the resurrection. Job received it in his lifetime. Sometimes God does and sometimes God doesn't. And in both cases, he's faithful. In both cases, God eventually shows up and makes right everything that was wrong. But here's the thing about Job. What What Job doesn't do is say, okay, well then we fake it till we make it. I'm going to put a plastic smile on my face and no matter what happens, I'm going to say, no, everything's fine. God's good all the time. I'm happy. Life is good and I'm not going to complain. No, 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 (laughs) no, no. There's like 35 chapters in between the beginning and the end where Job yells at God and rages at God and he's angry and he's doubting God's goodness and he demands an explanation and he says, why me? And he does all of the stuff that we do when we're stuck in circumstances that we don't, can't control and experiencing suffering, pain, and loss that we cannot escape. Job does all the things and God says, it's okay. Do you know why? Because he never walked away from his faith because he persisted in saying, I still will trust that God is good even when I don't see that God is good. 
James says, be like that in the midst of it all. Because this is what you're banking on. The very end of verse 11. Because the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Whatever else you will say about God, God is full of compassion and mercy. Now, the frustrating thing is, if God is so full of compassion and mercy, why does he let us suffer? The Bible never, ever, ever, ever gives an answer. If somebody gives you an answer, they're guessing. The Bible does not give an answer. James does not give an answer. Job does not give an answer. The closest thing you get to an answer in Job, Job demands for 35 chapters, God, tell me why you're doing this. You know what God says to Job in the Mike paraphrase? He says, Job, unless you think you're smarter than me, why don't you just trust me to run the universe? Okay? And by the way, I need to say this as an aside because Job uses this language of the Lord has taken away and God literally says, just let me run the universe the way I want to run it. Uh, I need to say God is not doing these things to Job or to you or to anybody. James says good and perfect gifts come from God. The world is broken and sinful and evil and unjust and messed up and that's why we experience pain and suffering. But God, even in the midst, is compassionate and merciful because God may not be lifting us out of our circumstance, but you know what he's doing? God is entering into our circumstances with us in the person of Jesus who left heaven and came to earth to become one of us, to live the life that we live, to live as a human being, to experience everything that we experience, to know every form of suffering and pain and loss so that the Bible can say whatever it is that you're going through, Jesus has gone through it too. He understands what you're going through, but Jesus doesn't just come for the sake of empathy. Jesus, after living a life that is filled with suffering and pain and loss, Jesus goes to the cross and he dies a death to defeat the power of injustice and sin and evil and suffering and pain and loss, to neuter it, to neutralize it, to disarm it, to make it, to render it ineffective in your life so that your suffering and pain and loss does not have to be the last word of your life, of what becomes of you. In fact, Jesus doesn't just die on the cross to defeat the power of sin and and suffering and pain. Jesus is raised from the dead to fill your life and mine with the life of Jesus who lived with patient endurance so that drawing on the strength of Jesus, we can in our lives live that same patient endurance in the midst of our circumstances that we can't control, in the midst of the suffering, pain, and loss that we can't escape. We can still, with the strength of Jesus, stand firm, holding out our little clay hearts, saying, God, would you form me into the person that you want to be even as I go through these circumstances? And would you surrender? Surround me with people who will stand with me and support me and keep me safe and carry me through. That's what Jesus came to do. And so here is the question. Not just for today, for this entire series, as you hold that clay heart out before God, in what, which of the three audiences are you? Are you the person who's living through circumstances you can't control and suffering pain and loss you cannot escape? Do you need to hold your heart out to God and say, would you give me the strength to stand firm, to be shaped and grown into the image of Jesus through these circumstances? 
Would you change me in the process? Or are you the person we talked about last week? The one who's been living your financial life in a way that is incompatible with Jesus? And do you need to hold out that clay heart and say, would you shape me into a person who's generous and content with what I have? Would you shape me in a person who cares more about justice than profits or income? Cares more about those who lack power and privilege than having more power and privilege myself. Is that you? Or are you the person we talked about the first week and you're holding this clay heart out to God and you're saying, God, I have been a control freak when it comes to my future. And I have not wanted what you've wanted. I've only wanted what I've wanted. And so now, God, here's my heart. I don't want what I want. I want what you want for me. In what ways do you need God to shape you? And what is that going to look like in your life? As you say, God, everything I have, starting with my heart, my whole life, I give to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these have been three hard weeks of three hard truths and three hard challenges to live out in our lives. But you have given us Jesus to remake us from the inside. Would you give us the strength and the courage to give you our hearts and our whole lives so that we could be completely yours. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.